Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Slate Money is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit BraintreePayments.com slash SlateMoney. And buy Credit Karma. Don't pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you can see your credit score right now absolutely free. Just text money to 89800 to download the free Credit Karma app and get started. Again, text the word money to 89800. And buy BowlingBranch.com, the company that makes luxury betting affordable. Get the nicest sheets you've ever owned for about half the price of what stores and boutiques are charging. Order right now and they'll give you $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H dot com. And use the promo code MONEY. I'm Gretchen Rubin. And I'm Elizabeth Kraft, her sister and happiness guinea pig. Every week on our podcast, we talk about a try this at home tip for making your life happier. Which try this at home tip do you think listeners have most responded to? Without question, the one minute rule. Oh, the rule that anything that you can do in less than a minute, you do without delay. Yes, put a dish in a dishwasher, hang up a coat, whatever. I have to say, this has improved my marriage because my husband is neat and I'm not. And this is a good example of that happiness can feel very transcendent and abstract, but sometimes it's the little practical things that give us the biggest happiness boost. Search for Happier wherever you find your podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the world-changing edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as ever, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello, everyone. I am joined, as always, by Jordan Weissman, the Moneybox columnist at Slate. Happy to be here, Felix. But most excitingly, awesomely, and fabulously, we are all joined for one week only by the one and only Adam Davidson, who needs no introduction, really. But Adam, how, how would you like to be introduced? Well, right now, I am the co-host of Surprisingly Awesome, a brand new podcast from Gimlet Media with my good friend who we will talk about, Adam McKay. You have a whole podcast, just you and Adam McKay, looking at things which look like they're boring, but you reckon that you can make them interesting anyway. That is the goal. Yes. I'm also co-founder of NPR's Planet Money, which is relevant to your podcast. And and we have... Adam on the show today, not only because he's just the best radio financial journalist in the world, but specifically 
because he was intimately involved in the making of a movie with Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling and Selena Gomez and a million other awesome people, which is coming out on December 23rd? It opens in New York and L.A., December 11th. It's coming out any minute now, now people. Yeah. And what is the name of the movie? The Big Short, based on the book by Michael Lewis. Um, we are going to talk about The Big Short. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of crisis-related stuff because it is Michael Lewis's crisis book. Everyone needs a crisis book except for me. I never wrote a crisis book. But we are going to talk about crisis media. We are going to talk about Mark Zuckerberg, who announced he's going to try and spend $45 billion on do-gooding. And by popular demand, we are going to resuscitate the McDonald's discussion from last week and try and bring a little bit more light and maybe a little bit less heat to the whole thing. But first, Adam Davidson. I really loved the book, The Big Short, and I polish it off in no time. It's a rollicking read. I have to admit that when I was reading it, it never occurred to me that this was going to become a Brad Pitt movie. Right. And Michael Lewis himself, who wrote the book, said, you know, and who has had books like Moneyball and The Blind Side turned into movies, said, well, the one thing I never have to worry about is who will play anyone in this movie, because there's no way this book will become a movie. I mean, the, the basic story is four groups of men, they all were men, who early on saw that there was a bubble in housing, that there were these dangerous financial products that could bring down the whole economy, and they bet against them. And so okay, I remember reading this book, and it was a while ago. This book's like, what, five years old or something? Four years? And what I remember the main characters doing, and this might just be because, because I'm a nerd and I identify with fellow nerds, but I remember the main characters pouring through prospectuses of mortgage-backed securities and like finding the deep, like reading through the details and finding out that they ha- they were flawed. There's a lot of Bond prospectuses in this is, movie. Yeah. Is Brad Pitt yeah. reading through prospectuses? They're, they're shockingly well-dramatized. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, like, I would say that... How so, could that be good so, cinema? So I will say I'm fully biased, but I really do believe, and you guys are objective, that this is a amazing dramatization of, of doing things bond like reading Bond prospectuses, <laughs> well, <laughs> reading the loan-level data. I'm the guy who actually, okay, like when me, Christian Bale Let me read, sorry, pull what? this back just, just a little bit before we get into the nitty-gritty of the movie. The Big Short as a book was Michael Lewis's way attempt to write a book about the financial crisis and to explain what happened in the financial crisis to a broad audience. Michael Lewis, is his technique when he tries to explain anything is to find a person and or, and or a group of people and to follow that group of people and to try and tell a bigger story by telling one person's story or a couple people's story. And he did that in the book or he tried to do that in the book. Is that also the intent of the movie to try and let people understand what on earth happened in the financial crisis? Or is the movie different from the book in that respect? I, I, I'd say there are the plot of the movie, the characters in the movie are extremely faithful to the book. And um, I've talked to almost all the real people involved. And, and for the most part, they feel it's a very accurate portrayal. And I'm just speaking for myself. I see the movie as is different from the book in a few key areas. Um, I think the book has more moral complexity, moral ambiguity. You know, I 
like every financial journalist, I worship Michael Lewis. I like him very much as a person. I think his writing is amazing. I'd say one thing he does that I tend not to do is he finds sort of good guys and bad guys. And and that's not how I see the world. That's not my experience for the most part. There are bad guys, but I don't see it in, in, in as black and white as he does. And I think the movie shades that a bit more. I mean, it, it, there are good guys and bad guys, but it's not quite as clean. Because what happened after the book came out is that Michael Lewis did revise his position a little bit. When the book first came out, I think the people doing the shorting and making lots of money were a little bit more heroic. And then in sort of the year or so after the book came out, Michael Lewis did come out with a few columns basically saying, on further consideration, these guys were probably more part of the problem than they were heroes. You know, I I saw Michael last week and we talked about this. I mean, I think... I think I would agree with him that the people featured in the book did more good than harm, that they were they're good for America. If we had more of them, the crisis would have probably happened sooner, but would have been less violent, or at least there's a chance that's the case. I, I completely disagree with that. Yeah, but that that's a separate issue, though. I think as a general rule, in my experience, people on Wall Street talk their book and talk their book is just a way of saying people have a trade they're making and, and questioning whether or not this is good or bad is not a it's just not part of the conversation in any substantive way. I was going to say, one of the, I guess, moral ambiguities here is that Michael Burry, one of the characters um, who, you know, is featured as kind of a oddball hero in the book, is also the guy responsible for essentially creating or asking for credit default swaps to be created. And so those added ended up adding a lot of fuel to the fire, and they were a big part of the problem with AIG. I, I'm curious how... Yeah, how do you kind of balance that and the fact that he did ask... He well, yeah, I mean, I want to go further than that and say it's easy to see how these guys made things worse yeah. because they created all of the synthetic CDOs. They created all of the bets on bets on bets, which made the, the size of the crisis so much bigger. When you say that they did more good than harm, I mean, the harm is easy to see. What good did they do? I'm, I'm Can not I jump in here pro- for a second? Yeah. And I, like, I'll, I'll say what they did. I'll defend the these so-called heroes, and I'll also say why I don't think they're heroes. In defense, we want there to be a counterfactual to any sort of, any kind of bubble that's being ridden in Wall Street. And we had this huge pro-housing bubble situation, and these guys were countervailing force. They were saying, hey, not so fast. This isn't such a great idea. That's a good thing in general for finance. But if we're going to talk about ethics, and they figured out that this stuff was dirty and it was rotten, what did they decide to do about that? They decided to make just a shit ton of money. They could have done something else. They could have like well, alerted. I think, I think, well, actually, think, some of them did work very, very hard. And I was one of the reporters they came to trying to alert the media, trying to alert the SEC. Not all of them did that. But, right. but particularly but Jamie think... and Charlie did do that. Jamie May, Charlie Ledley really did try and alert the world. Good. And But, but what I'm just going to say is, broadly speaking, I think if we had more shorts, if we had more of a conversation about the decrepitude of these financial products, that would have been good. And, and this is, and this is where I disagree. In the first place. So I think it's very easy to extrapolate here from a world which finance nerds like us understand quite well, which is shorting stocks, where if you think a short is overvalued and there's a bubble and that the stock is going to go down, you borrow the stock, you sell it, that helps to stop the price of of that stock from going up. And in fact, it can help the price of that stock go down and it can help prevent bubbles. And short 
sellers have a very positive role to play in price discovery and that kind of thing in the stock market. And I think that that does not analogize to the mortgage market and that the act of creating these synthetic CDOs, far from bringing down prices, actually just added fuel to the fire and made the whole thing worse. I, I will say, though, that they're kind of almost separate from whether or not these guys are heroes and kind of that, in a way it's like a really loaded word, obviously. But this does bring up the issue of there need to be some incentives for people to call bullshit on a giant bubble like that. Otherwise, it's going to, you know, the point of the bubble was that people were being given these mortgages that were eventually going to crush them financially. And if there's no incentive for anyone to say to call bullshit and say something has to stop this, we have a problem because those bubbles are going to keep forming. Maybe no, in, is... in the end, they may not have it, in the end, unfortunately, the way they called bullshit happened to add fuel to the fire. And so that speaks to a systemic problem. But I, I, I do understand the urge to see the, the guys who, who spoke truth to, I guess, to financial folly, financial power, seeing them in some sort of heroic light. I, even I, if it's, they were definitely correct. Yeah. No one is denying that they were correct. They yeah. just weren't good. But I yeah. So I feel like when I read the book, these are heroes fighting for good. When I see the movie, I, I feel like... These are complex figures who are conf confused about their own personal benefit, what their responsibility is. It, it feel the movie does feel to me, and and you guys saw yeah. it. I've been involved with the movie for a very long time. I'm, I have no yeah. Yeah. distance on it, but that was that's my feeling. I, my, the, very my end, the very end, there's a scene specifically about this. Like there, I, I don't want to give anything away, but there's <laughs> we all went through it. There's, yeah. there's, 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 no, 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 no. I mean, yeah. for, for the listeners though, like there's a scene specifically that addresses this issue that we're talking about right now. So I guess viewers who see it, well, I mean, listeners who see the movie are going to be able to judge whether or not the movie dealt with this sufficiently. I do want to change subjects a little bit here because uh, we haven't actually asked you. How how were you involved in the movie? What were you up to with it? All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd be thrilled to talk. Yeah, yeah. This was like so much fun. Yeah. And it's hard not to sound like I'm just showing off. Um, we asked you to show off. So okay. Yeah. All right. We, we want to hear about this. So my You're living the financial nerd dream okay. right now. All right. Let's, yes. Let's... This was a financial nerd dream. So my brother, Eben Davidson, is a senior vice president at Paramount Pictures. And through him, I become friends with Mark Evans, who's the president of Paramount Pictures. And so Adam McKay is this director. He's mainly known for comedies. He was the head writer of Saturday Night Live, wrote the Anchorman movies, Talladega Nights. And if, if you do see those movies knowing what I'm about to say, you can see it, but it's not the first thing that leaps to your mind. He's an extremely passionate, progressive lefty who um, is also, you know, arguably America's leading purveyor of sort of broad, goofy comedies. But but now that I know him, when I see his movies, I'm like, oh, wow, they're basically like a lecture, you know, like a Bernie Sanders supporting <laughs> lecture, um, but, but secretly tucked in. Anyway, so... Adam McKay um, read the book, loved the book, wanted and was like, I still feel pissed off about the financial crisis. I don't really understand what that was. What what was that? And the closest I got to understanding it was reading Michael Lewis's book. So I'd like to make that into a movie. He called around. He found out that Brad Pitt's production company, Plan B, had optioned it. Um, and there was a script. But people, all of these issues, there was a, a real fear on the part of big studios. Who's going to root for a bunch of people who made money off the crisis? Are they really heroes? I mean, all of these issues were central to why this movie had not previously been made. So Adam McKay decides, I'm going to make the movie, and Paramount and Plan B are going to produce it. And he's talking to the president of Paramount Pictures, and is like, I'm going to make the movie. I don't actually know that much about these financial products about Wall Street. And so the president said, oh, my friend's brother, he knows that stuff. Why don't you talk to Adam Davidson? 
And so a couple of years ago, I get a phone call. We have this, we talk on the phone. Pretty soon I fly out to Hollywood and I end up, I mean, McKay and I are now like, I think I can say like very close friends as, um, but at first I was just his financial nerd that he's hiring to help him understand these products. But it just became so much fun just sitting with him for hours and hours and hours talking through the products and, and really like, and you guys know this and I don't know how much we want to get into it on the show, but understanding what a mortgage-backed security, what a plain vanilla agency-backed mortgage-backed security is, understanding how that's a very different thing from a private label mortgage-backed security, understanding how that's a very different thing from a CDO, understanding how that's a different thing from a synthetic CDO. These were, just knowing all of that were central to writing the movie. And then understanding how each of the characters in the movie were making slightly different bets that had different moral and emotional dimensions was very important. So I so I need to come in here and say, if you think that the movie really explains this kind of stuff, you're wrong. I do think that the... And, and I'm saying that just as someone who's seen the movie. I mean, the I do think that the movie does a good job of making people think that they understand what's going on in real time because it has that nice little narrative drive and it moves forward. But And, you know, and there's this famous scene of Margot Robbie in the bathtub trying to explain something, but 24 hours later, what you remember about that scene is Margot Robbie in the bathtub and you don't remember a word of what she was saying. Well, let me let me just finish the whole process because I think it'll help get to what you're talking about. So, so for a year, for most of the last 2014, I... Worked very closely with McKay writing. I mean, he wrote the movie, but I would say I had a very big impact. I think he he has said that, you know, helping not just, I mean, part of it is he'd write like financial gobbledygook goes here and I type in financial. <laughs> it's like the know, Star Trek yeah, uh, yeah, techno make, battle. Right. Make yeah. it make it accurate. Um, I, I know a guy who works for Silicon Valley, the TV show, and they just sort of bring him in. They're like, we need something on this board that geeks will know is actual geek. And so he just writes something on the board. No one knows what it is. But it. so um, if anything, the most fun part of the movie is I was working very closely on set with what they call the department head. So there's like a set designer, a set decorator, a costume designer, a props department. And I'm working very closely with them on just because they know nothing. They like they've seen Bonfire of the Vanities. I think they're hoping it's going to be guys screaming. So I'm bringing all those people to actual trading floors. I'm I'm getting like one thing I'm proud of, but nobody else would ever notice is every scene where there's like a prospectus or research from a bank. That's actual research that would have been on that person's desk in that month of, of that scene. You know, I, I worked hard to have a verisimilitude. If, if there's any sort of financial verisimilitude in this movie, it's your fault. I mean, I, I think <laughs> McKay would, would, would give me credit for that. And so then I, the okay. most awesome part right. is I had to work with the actors and, like, explain, you know, so I had to, like, sit with Brad Pitt, sit with Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, Christian Bale, and be like, here's what your character is doing. Here's what he's saying. It was interesting to me how each of them had a different level of interest, a different way of processing the information. Was there one actor who appeared to get it better than the others? Or are you even allowed to disclose such a thing? I'm going to assume that if Brad Pitt optioned the book and really wanted to make it into a movie, that's maybe because he understood what was going on? Yeah. I mean, I will say, I mean, all of them were awesome. And everyone in this process, literally everybody. I had zero experience of like Hollywood divaism. I had everyone was cool, everyone was nice, everyone was respectful, very professional. I'd say Ryan Gosling was a guy who really engaged the material, asked 
very deep questions, ask very thoughtful questions. And now and, he's play, playing Greg Lippman, who is the guy who kind of orchestrated this entire thing and made a mere $50 million, which is so much less than everyone else. Poor guy, doesn't your heart just bleed? And he says that. I mean, that, uh, Greg Lippman does feel like, why did I only make $50 million? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, but I would say if, of the actors, um, Ryan, and then Brad Pitt would be the other one who, who, and then a couple of the secondary actors were very, very interested and very, um, I will tell you that I've discovered there is, the world we live in of finance, there's a slightly larger appetite for stories about Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling. <laughs> that is something I've, I have but learned. Let me, <laughs> let me ask you, let me just pull away from, from The Big Short for a minute. The Big Short, the book, was one of the big crisis books. Too Big to Fail was another one which was also turned into an HBO movie with Paul Giamatti and various other William Hurt. William Hurt. We had Bethany McLean on. She's our favorite guest on the show. We love her dearly. She wrote All the Devils Are Here with Jonah Serra, which is also another good book. There was a bunch of crisis books. Um, and then there was the universally acclaimed crisis podcast on This American Life called The Giant Pool of Money, which um, someone in this room was intimately involved in. Yes. <laughs> that was, that was yeah. your big sort of crisis explainer, and yeah. everyone loved that. And Felix, I think you were a crucial part of that period. I mean, it wasn't in one jump, but it was, I mean, I think... Yeah, I, I, I had a you, block. You were and a my, major my force thing, in the world of economic explainers, particularly at that time. Through my my thing was always that the unit of, you know, when you're writing a blog, the thing that you're writing is the blog. It's not the blog post. And, I, you know, in my blog as a whole, I think, was explaining the crisis, although there was never, like, just one thing you could point to. But I think that's what I wanted to ask you, is just looking back on the gazillion different attempts to sort of try and explain what on earth just happened to the global economy and to the housing market and to the American economy, to the banks and to every, the way everything was interrelated. Now that you've been involved in books, in movies, in podcasts, in blogs, what's your view of like which, if any of them, is the medium which can do this? Or do you think it's even possible? I, I think that... Um... I think that when I look back at the giant pool of money, which, or I think about this movie, I think the key lesson that I think people get out of it is not so much a specific technical understanding of, of what a synthetic CDO is. I mean, I have spent literally years studying synthetic CDOs, and I feel like every time I think about them, I have to like re-remember what they are and kind of they're very complicated. I, I think we did something something on a different plane. What, what I think we did in, in Giant Pull Money, and it wasn't something we thought about, it's just something I think looking back, and I think the movie The Big Short does that too, which is to say that fundamentally, this is a story that is a human story. I, I think when the crisis hit in 2008, my sense was that a lot of people who didn't work on Wall Street, and frankly, a lot of people who did, suddenly felt like, oh, there's this alien force that's bigger and smarter and has power over everything about my life. And that alien, I don't even know how to think about it. I don't know how to engage it. And I think communicating that these are human creations created by people with recognizable human emotions, including obviously greed and self-interest and stupidity or all too clever intelligence, that this crisis existed in a in a continuum with your own life and the world that you already know you live in, I think is valuable. I would hope that that helps empower people and makes them at least feel like 
okay, this is something I can have something of opinion about, I can begin to think about, at a time when I think people weren't even able to know how to think about it. I'm assuming millions of people at this point have listened to the giant pool of money. Hopefully many millions of people will see the movie. Are we talking about 1,000 people, 2,000 people, 10,000 people who actually their life has changed in some way? I don't know. I don't know what's, what, what's realistic to expect. But you know, that, that's the level where I think I've made a contribution, or I like to think I have. I, that resonates with me, I, it, but also reminds me of what I think Occupy accomplished. Occupy was, was uh, people complained about it because people didn't know exactly what was happening in finance. But, but the one thing that Occupy made clear is that you don't actually have to understand all the details to know it doesn't work, right? And uh, people started finding their voice um, because of this kind of thing, which I, I think is really important. And certainly Adam McKay, the director, would love it if we all became politicized and angry as a result of watching this film. Not that that's going to happen. That That is um, really all we have time for on this subject, but it's an awesome, wonderful subject, and we're going to revisit it at some point. Slate Money is sponsored this week by Braintree. Braintree is this company which will let you get money from people. They want to pay you, but you don't want them to find it difficult. You want them to find it easy. So if you have a website, if you have an app, Uber uses Braintree, Airbnb uses Braintree, people can pay you with anything they like, whether it's Apple Pay or Venmo or Bitcoins or credit cards or anything they like. It's super easy. It's a very simple integration as continuous support so check it out for yourself at braintreepayments.com slash slate money braintree's full stack payment solution is all yours at braintreepayments.com slash slate money so adam um, what did mark zuckerberg do this week well, I thought he did one thing like three days ago, and now through the work of you and Jesse Eisinger and others, I, I have a more complicated view of what he did. But um, the press release version is he promised to give 99% of his shares in Facebook to... What people were calling charities. What people were calling charities. Yeah. What we now know is that he created a corporate... a for profit corporate entity to contain a taxable a taxable i think i think for profit is putting it wrong i don't think that the aim of this entity is to make a profit but it is taxable it is taxable right so what he did not do is say i'm going to give this much money to this person i'm going to give this much money to this organization on this time frame what he did do is he shifted the ownership of his Facebook stocks to a taxable limited liability company called Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which can, if it so chooses, give that money just as any entity can, if it so chooses, give that money to charities. It also can not give that money to charities. It can lobby Congress or other politicians. It can um, just become a fully for-profit enterprise. I mean, he has not, there's no, what the game theorists would call, there's no binding constraint on what he did other than reputational. I mean, he has made this statement. So if we find out next year that he's using all the money to buy a giant yacht, we can call him on it. And then very thrillingly in the world of finance Twitter, you and my good friend Jesse Eisinger exchanged remarkably thoughtful, but still barbed comments at each other. I believe I called him churlish. 
Churlish. <laughs> yes. I know you both reasonably well. I think you're more churlish than him. I'm just going to come out and say that as on average. Um, but uh, I would love for you to explain because that it was exciting for me. It was sort of a, a thrilling finance week. There's this big news story, which I'm not really following because I'm busy on something else. And, oh, Zuckerberg, he's giving all his money to charity. What, uh, uh, that's interesting. And then Jesse comes out. Well, actually inspired by Jesse Drucker, a Bloomberg writer, comes out with this thing saying, no, this is a bunch of BS. He's just hiding taxes. This is not anything to do with charity. This is all yeah. about... John Cassidy thought it was some kind of a tax dodge, and it clearly isn't a tax dodge because there's nothing tax-exempt about this I LLC. I don't under... I, I, I feel I think I, I'm going to let you talk, but I feel like I probably agree with you like 98% on it. So please oh, go I ahead. I disagree 100%. Yeah, so Felix, do you want to go <laughs> well, with no, this? So the... let, let me, let's start with um, Kathy, because it's a lot easier for me to say why Kathy is wrong than it is for me, <laughs> if we know what yeah. Kathy well, Thanks thinks. for setting me up like that, Felix. Was that um, churlish? I think that was churlish. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not even half as churlish as we get on this show. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear the McDonald's episode last week? <laughs> well, I mean, basically, I feel like that's my money. He's, he's giving away my money. Now, you're right. He hasn't given it away yet, and he's going to give it away in some future time. And right now it's sitting in something that's taxable. But if and when he turns his Facebook shares into a charity donation, right, that's him deciding. Let's, let's, just, take, let's just take it for example. He has a million dollars in Facebook shares. He decides to give it to charity. What would have happened if he didn't decide to give it to charity? Well, he would have had to, when he sold his Facebook shares, he would have had to... Why, why would he sell his Facebook shares? I'm saying, that, um, that's my assumption. He's either, he's, he's either going to give it to charity or he's going to do something else with it. And, this, I, and, th and I'm going to completely push back right there. That it is obvious to me that the only other thing that Mark Zuckerberg would ever do with his Facebook stake is sit on it yeah. and do nothing. The only other thing that he would do with his Facebook stake is what Warren Buffett has done with his Berkshire Hathaway stake, which is just get richer as it grows in value. He has no need to sell it. It's not like he can spend all of those billions of dollars on shoes, you know? So there's two things you can do. You can either just sit on it and do nothing with it, which generates zero taxes, or you can give it to charity. There's like, there's no third option. I will also mention that Mark Zuckerberg, before he even turned 30, paid two or three billion dollars in taxes. That This guy has paid more taxes than virtually anyone else on the planet. I'm pretty sure that he's actually paid more taxes, you know, right now, age 31, than Warren Buffett has in his entire life, despite the fact that Warren Buffett is richer than Mark Zuckerberg. It's not like Mark Zuckerberg is out there as some kind of icon as ta of tax evasion. And I think that, yes, I agree that the charitable tax deduction is a bad thing. I would love to get rid of the charitable tax deduction. And that's, I think, an entirely separate issue. I think that it is really silly to start criticizing gifts to charity on the grounds of there's a charitable tax deduction. That's two different things. Yeah. I, I no, well, uh, my basic point was, though, that when he decides what to do with it, it's a, it's a power play, right? He's basically saying, instead of ta giving money to the government through taxes, I'm going to get to decide what to do with this money. And, and as rich billionaires do that, the rich billionaires have much more and more power. Um, so, okay, so, so, so this is where I get really frustrated because every rich billionaire does this. Every single billionaire in the world has lots of power and decides what to do with their money and minimizes their taxes on, an aggress on a more or less aggressive basis depending on their nationality and their you know, personality type. You know, Rupert Murdoch is not 
um, paying a lot of taxes. So why, of all the billionaires in the world, do we single out for, you know, tax this particular tax-based criticism, the one who's actually trying to do good with his money? I, I would add, I think the legitimate thing to bring up here is to ask about his judgment, how he spends it. And I think... I wrote something short about this, but, you know, Zuckerberg's first big charitable move was basically dropping $100 million on the Newark school system and saying remake, like saying to Cory Booker and Chris Christie, go reform your system and make it, you know, make it the best in the world. And it was just blind. He didn't he literally had never been to Newark by the time he met Cory Booker and basically decided to give this gift. He knew nothing about urban school reform. And a lot of people, there was a long New Yorker article about it, and there was a book, have kind of described it as a disaster. A lot of the money just got spent on consultants. Um rather than actually helping students. There's still some arguments about how Newark school reform has worked out. So the question is, isn't so much to me, is he going to avoid some taxes? Because that is, like Felix is saying, a, a separate policy discussion. It's what is he going to do with the money? And is he going to use it in a not even like, you know, optimal way? Because who can really say what the absolute optimal way to spend your money? Is he going to try to do it in a smart, uh, systematic way? And it seems like by creating this, you know, taxable entity, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, at least he's going about it in a very uh, systematized uh, approach, which I, I think is. And, the I, and I will. I'll, I'll rephrase that. Yeah, okay. okay. He has already thrown away $100 million on consultants in Newark, and it has well, not nothing to show yet. for it. Wait, Kathy, but I'm going to. And now we, we think that it's so great that he's now going to be you know, deciding other stuff with way more money. I, and I'm not singling out him as a billionaire. Obviously, given that, given that there's, uh, you know, he has, he's a good guy, we hope, we think. That's, that's great. I'm talking about the system that we're, we're presenting to billionaires. I mean, I, I'm not saying this guy is a bad, he's, he's not, he doesn't, he has well, good intentions, right? I just don't have more faith in what he's choosing to do, given his record, than what the government could do with that money. So, okay, so, so this is... Can, this I, is, okay. can I just jump yeah. in real quick? So, just a couple things. I just want to second what Felix is saying, which is there is a deep conversation to have about how we tax the super wealthy in this country. And I'm going to take a wild guess and say the four of us would agree we're not doing it optimally. And and um, I think we might end up at a different place if we actually wrote a solution. But it would definitely be, I think, more taxes coming from the wealthy and less ability to hide their money. It's very hard to do, very tricky. But that's one big bucket. A second bucket, which I think the Newark um, school example is, is crucial, is how do you effectively spend uh, charitable money or philanthropic money or whatever we want to call it? And this, to me, we are in such an interesting moment in, in the, the very idea of like trying to transform other people's lives through money as sort of a, a big concept. It's very new. I mean, it's, it's you know, you, you know there's, there's been you know, rich kings and stuff throwing money here and there, but a kind of systematic system of foundations and governments trying to intercede. It's maybe 100 years old, maybe 50 years old. You could argue over whether the Marshall Plan is the first real example. We started truly systematically studying how money impacts the people you want to help them, maybe in like 2005, 2003. It's very new, serious, sober-minded, peer-reviewed studies where we actually can begin to know stuff about how money impacts people in positive and not perverse ways. And we're so new in it that what we do need now, I believe, lots of people believe, is um, 
Here come the RCTs. RCTs is we need something <laughs> like the venture capital model where we're willing to make huge mistakes, but not arbitrarily. I don't think Newark is a good example. I think Newark because... is actually a good example. I mean, not the best example <laughs> because... No, that, that wasn't it was, controlled. It was, <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm not saying it was a controlled experiment, and I have a big problem with, with randomized controlled trials in general, and we're going to have... And I'm just going to say, that's one tool. Yeah, I'm not saying yeah. it's the only But tool. we are going to yeah. have a whole podcast in January with Bill Easterly on this subject, so that's going to be a fantastic one. But the fact is, the Newark donation was cynically timed to coincide with the release of the social network and it was meant to be like a positive thing mean waiting for superman and oh, no it's the social network waiting for superman in any case the the, the point the, the point is that mark zuckerberg was willing to what you call do a sort of risk capital thing here the the government can't throw a hundred million dollars at something which probably won't work very few people have that ability if what you were talking about, Jordan, is like a systematized way of trying to work out the best way, that's actually not what Mark Zuckerberg no, is no, doing. I mean, that is what his co-founder, Dustin Moskowitz, is doing. And that is what people like GiveWell are doing. And I think there's a very strong case to be made for the people who want to maximize the effect of their philanthropic money to do that. I think what's fascinating about what Mark Zuckerberg is doing is that he's willing and able to do crazy things with a low probability of success and quite possibly a low level of public support and say, I'm the only person who can do this. I, I, I want why to do we trust him? Why do we trust him? We don't need to trust him. That's the whole point. So $45 billion is half of the annual budget of New York City. It's 1% of the annual budget of the federal government. Like, it's not like this money would make a big difference in government instead. Yeah, I think if you, I add, if you add up all the billionaires, I, I see Kathy's point in the sense that if you add up all the billionaires doing this over time, over the next 60 years, while, it, it collectively... Yes, while lobbying for lower taxes. Yeah, it, it, it does collectively add up, but at the same time, it's hard for me to... Again, you have to kind of split it between what this one guy's doing and the problems with the system on the whole. I don't think... I think you can legitimately criticize a system that you agree, Felix, should probably be uh, reformed, at the same time acknowledging that... Mark Zuckerberg right now probably is not personally culpable in any way. It's for, not. Yeah, exactly. It's not the, really his fault. Yeah. He's a billionaire. I, I totally and it's agree. Hard well, to put all of the <laughs> sins of billionaires. No, no. Onto yes, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, exactly. I would say though that the Newark public school system is in a bad place partly because of poverty and inequality and lack of opportunities for the Newark residents. And it's it's just I just think it's kind of ironic that a billionaire says we're gonna f- I'm gonna use my money to solve this problem, which was created in part because we don't invest. But he Public can't goods. change that. But, but the thing that he, the one piece is, I'm with you that looking forward at Mark Zuckerberg, I would love to see big swings, risky bets, lots of failure if there's learning and if there's amassing some way of, of iterating and improving. And you're absolutely right that this is a new science and this is something which he's very interested in developing. And one of my slogans, which I'm sure I've said on this podcast before is that it's a lot easier to turn power into money than it is to turn money into power. The idea that just because you're rich, you can actually have an effect on anything is not exactly supported by the empirical evidence. And a lot of these philanthropies 
are trying very hard to try and work out what is the best way to take a lump of cash and turn it into a meaningful positive change in the world. Mark Zuckerberg is doing that. Of course, it would be great if he didn't need to do it and everyone in Newark was like out of poverty and and, and happy. Uh, But, you know, John Arnold, who's another billionaire who's been looking at Newark quite closely, is saying like, you can look at where he started you can it's not quite as bad as the prize the book and various other people have painted it and if you start doing something a little bit more holistic and you start tackling poverty on a regional basis rather than just concentrating on schools there if you have 45 billion dollars there are things you can do and i think the idea that we can have some hope that individual actions by rich people can have a positive effect we know they can going back to you know john rockefeller senior Billionaires can be... Sheldon Adelson. Well. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, we will, um, we will leave these billionaires because Zach Dynastein is, is making... Wrap this thing up, Felix. We don't want the podcast to be three hours long, no. figures at me. Slate Money is also sponsored this week by Credit Karma, which is the free way to get your credit score. There are lots of expensive ways to get your credit score. There are lots of services who will ask you to subscribe to them so that you can find out your credit score. Do not use those services. Just download the Credit Karma app on your phone by texting MONEY to 89800, and it will tell you your credit score for free. This is a useful thing to know, so find out. Text MONEY to 89800 to find out what your credit score is, and maybe get lots of other useful information as well, like which old credit cards might be hurting your credit. Just remember, you don't need to pay for this. It's completely free. They will not ask you a credit card number. They will not charge you any money. Ignorance is not bliss in this respect. Get your free credit report today by texting MONEY to 89800 to download the free Credit Karma app right now. Jordan, are you feeling weirdly gratified or vindicated in any way this week? I would say a little bit more so than usual. (laughs) So this is the situation. Those of you who were listening last week will know that we had a little bit of what we English people call argy-bargy. Was there a Donnybrook? We had a Donnybrook. (laughs) Um, Jordan, in his inimitable idiocy, decided to say... (laughs) Um, one of the most stupid things that anyone has ever said on Slate Money, which is that McDonald's is some kind of force for good in the world and we should all be thankful thankful for careful, it. Careful, careful. You're talking about our listeners now. I'm going to interrupt right now, Felix, because I have figured out a way where we can all be right and I'll be happy. Well, okay. first, I, I want to just, I, before we segue into I, your kind of conciliatory... You, you want to be I, smug for just I another minute. I want to be smug okay. for one more minute. I Gloat, get, go ahead. I don't get to be often on this show. So... At the end, I put out a call to our listeners saying, you know, please vote. Tell us what you think about McDonald's. You know, and is it a for- is it something to be thankful for? Uh, and we got a, I think we got more emails on this than any subject yes, we've, for sure. we've ever gotten. In the end, the tally was pro McDonald's, 38. Uh, anti-McDonald's, 18, and neutral was was 10. I, I, think, I think all of those numbers have gone up a bit since yeah, they've that gone tally. Up. It's, but it's been like six Generally, more. it's about two to one. Yeah. Pro McDonald's. And I just want to. I, I want to just reiterate the art for those who might not have been listening. So what my what my argument was, which was that even though we have some bad associations with McDonald's now, you have to remember that back in the 1950s, it was the company most responsible for 
or really did almost single-handedly come up with the modern franchise model, which gave us or allowed the American fast food chain to flourish. And as a result, kind of gave us a base level of food quality and I would argue some probably food safety in a lot of places well, I have to around say the country. The, the main theme that I found in the pro-McDonald's emails was not so much food quality or food safety, but and clean toilets. That wasn't yes. There were some clean toilets. And that segues directly to my point, which is that I think we were running on different definitions of thankfulness. Because almost to a man, the person, the people that wrote in saying that we, I agree with Jordan, said they were individually thankful for the, what McDonald's had to offer them. Clean toilets, consistent yeah. uh, quality, cleanliness. It was easy for my friends and me to uh, agree on a place because we all know McDonald's. Is indiv- at the individual level, they're thankful. And I want to say that as, as an individual, I'm also thankful for McDonald's. I lived in Budapest for a year and McDonald's was literally the only place you can go for to use the bathroom without sitting down for a two-hour meal. So there's definitely things to be individually thankful for. That doesn't mean that we are thankful as a culture. We think that McDonald's has had a positive effect on our culture, which I think... I do want to say, I'm going to go make a a weak defense of Jordan in the the following sense, because I hate McDonald's. I never eat there. I hope I never eat there again. I'm dreading my son, who's four, just last week for the very first time, said, Dada, what's that M flag? And I was like, oh, man, it starts. So, but that being said, I would say, broadly speaking, the 20th century is the transformation in parts of the world from a world where starvation is the number one human challenge to a world where obesity is the primary challenge. And I think that the machinery that allowed that to happen, the industrialization, Walmart, McDonald's, gets a lot of credit for that. I think so much so that we are now wealthy enough that we can actually, for the first time in human history, have a broad class of people who actually think about what they want to eat and not just think, oh, there's food, I'm going to eat it, and actually begin to think about consuming health rather than just consuming food. And I I don't know that it had to be McDonald's. I don't know that it, you know, I don't know enough about McDonald's to know if they didn't make some pretty crappy choices along the way. I certainly hate industrialized food. I can't stand the idea of eating pink slime. But I'd say broadly, the very fact that we can have this conversation and think about this conversation, think about food as a thing where there is choice and and levels of quality and... and, um, and an opportunity to reject entire classes of food as uninteresting or beneath us is a byproduct of companies like McDonald's. I think so, you're giving McDonald's too much credit for that. And I think I think the the you know I, I think that what McDonald's did do was create millions of deaths from heart disease and obesity. <laughs> they engineered their food to put you know to maximize various sort of atavistic pleasure receptors around salt and fat. Yeah, the and food sugar. engineering of McDonald's is out of control. Jordan was talking about eating McGriddles, which I had never heard of a McGriddle before last week, and now I've I looked it up on the internet. And it's basically a sandwich where they inject maple syrup into the bun. You know, I kinda want one. Yeah, it's of a pan those. Yeah. <laughs> Felix, that's called a pancake made with some maple syrup. So <laughs> I mean this week the C D C like proudly announced that the number of new diabetes cases is finally not is finally going down. The yearly diabetes cases is down to one point four million instead of one point seven million. 
And, you know, it just makes me think, because I'm pretty diabetic myself, my father's diabetic, these kinds of McDonald's, McDonald's puts corn syrup into everything. And I'm going to go one step further because I've had a week to think about it. When, um, when Felix said that cows are processed corn, I just want to say that people in this country are processed corn. This is a problem. And, di- and McDonald's is, is contributing to that problem. That's my real thing about McDonald's. It's not that I don't like the taste of the food. I like the fries. When I was pregnant, I had a huge urge for McDonald's fries. But I don't think it's a good choice to make if you're pre-diabetic. But what is the... I mean, I would want to put some constraint on this. What is the alternative in the 1950s? If it wasn't McDonald's... It wasn't going to be like there's. Do well, you know, so we had, a, we had a bunch of emails that. about yeah. it. No, but that and was not going to happen. Yeah, like, what, there's no realistic. The, the, the that's main, not a pat, that the we don't live in a world where there was going to be a national chain of beans and rice restaurants in the United States. No, but in you the didn't 1950s. need a national chain. And, and where we were going without McDonald's well, was I'm saying Johnson. if we didn't develop the ability to produce food at scale through better industrial processing and uh, better logistics, then we would not now be rich enough to want to voluntarily spend extra money to consume better so quality I, food. I would say this, though. And I don't okay. see who, if McDonald's doesn't get credit for that, who does? Well, what Felix is gesturing at here is that if, if true fast food had not emerged in the 1950s and McDonald's and you know Burger Chef and Burger King even by the 60s, you would have had more things like Howard Johnson's on the side of the road where it's or basically, the Lions Corner Houses yeah, yeah, in England, which, which my family used uh, ba- to own. Which basically, it's like, you know, as far as health concerns go, how healthy is Denny's? Like, that's that's what we're talking yeah. about. Like, that's that's the level of food. I mean, Howard Johnson's was not a health food restaurant. Um, you know, I don't think it would have been great for the American diet either. I also don't buy it. I yeah. think there was, when you have a national highway system, yeah. when you have national, uh, the development of national-based logistics and supply, you're going to have a national food chain, and it's probably going to be a lot like yeah. McDonald's. So, it's probably so going to sell low-end burgers and fries. Emails. We need to We need to talk a little bit about these emails. Um, so, Jordan, do you have any particular email that you want well, to read also just there, to there, there, there's also it. the global element of mcdonald's a lot of we, this was another thing people from around the world and so there was one we got uh that i thought was interesting which was uh from uh, igor pak or igor pak i uh, pak uh he writes i can't vouch for the u.s in the ni- in 1950s but in 1990 i recall how the chain opened its first restaurant in tverskaya the pasha street in moscow i went there a few days later and waited for an hour to get in the line stretched from around the corner it was unbelievably clean compared to other places we had at the time don't even think about the toilets in those places people were nice smiley and efficient the food smelled like food and had actual fat in it this was all hard to imagine for all us russians back then and you do see with american chains in general going to a lot of developing nations uh, you know this happened early in china you see it now in africa where they are essentially the healthiest, cleanest option for a lot of these uh, these communities when they first emerged there. And then over time, again, as is happening in China, and we've discussed on this uh, podcast, eventually they move on to something else, other stuff. And that is what that is what I would say you guys have done. That It's not that you're bourgeois snobs. I'm a bourgeois snob. When I had <laughs> dinner at your house, we spent about 40 minutes discussing the wine I brought. It's that <laughs> we are bourgeois snobs not because our parents were kings, but because we are middle-class Americans or Brits who were allowed to become bourgeois snobs because of the developments of the 20th century, for which McDonald's is a 
key component. We've grown past McDonald's because of McDonald's. So to me, it's, there's no alternate universe in which there was no McDonald's or McDonald-like company that got us to this point where we're sitting in a room on a podcast talking about McDonald's. Okay, so Adam Davidson has adjudicated this debate. Uh, we are going to leave it there. We are going to thank our sponsors, who are amazing. Bolland Branch make excellent sheets. They're organic. They come from India. They're unbelievably comfortable. They just get softer and more comfortable the more that you wash them. They're pretty much the best sheets you've ever had. I'm not even going to start talking about thread counts and things like that. All I'm going to say is that you can get 20% off your entire order, whether it's sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, the whole thing, plus free shipping, if you go to bollandbranch.com today, and because this is the internet, you get a risk-free trial for 30 days. Don't just throw them on your bed. This is the one thing I would say. Make sure you wash them first, then try them out for a couple weeks. And if you're not completely delighted, just send them back and it's no harm, no foul. But you will love these things. Bollandbranch.com, B-O-L-L. L and branch.com and use the promo code money. That's important. If you don't use the promo code money, you won't get 20% off. So bollandbranch.com, B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code money. And we are going to wrap up with the numbers round. Jordan, you're looking at me like you have an amazing number. It's not that amazing. It's a, it's a good number. No, what, what's uh, number? it's a follow-up number. So um, my number is 31%. Uh, 11 Madison Park, uh, it is actually, I think it's the it's one of the more famous uh, high-end restaurants in America. I think uh, on the top 50 list, it's number five right now. Uh, recently announced that they are getting rid of tipping. Um, we've, again, discussed the demise or restaurants kind of moving away from tipping before. And 31% is how much they're going to have to raise the price of their tasting menu. Uh, it's interesting because that's not too different than the price hike that Danny Meyer, um, who's also moving away from tipping in his restaurants, is talking about. So it's starting to seem like that, I don't know, that could be something like a magic number that res the restaurant industry is settling on. Something, if you get rid of tips, it's going to cost about 30% more for food to make the numbers work out. I have um, a fun number. Oh, I, I thought it was amusing anyway. It's sad, though. 5,000. It's the number of guns found in a gun hoarder's house in South Carolina. Uh, they now suspect that he was part of the so-called iron pipeline of illegal firearms that flow from the, from the South to New York um, and New Jersey illegally. Um, but my favorite part was the quote from the sheriff, the county sheriff, Jay Brooks, in the article, quote, this has completely changed our definition of an ass load of guns. <laughs> 5,000 guns. I, yeah, there you go. I, that, I they like, had a definition. Is there a metric ass load? I, I, used to, I used to think an ass load of guns was like 40 guns. Now, right, right. It's like, it's, my, my number is uh, $62.5 billion, which is the latest post-money valuation of Uber in the wake of its latest $2.1 billion capital round. Uber seems to be this company which is never not raising a new round of money of equity. And, you know, Uber's now worth more than General Motors. You know, it's this crazy, massive company and people concentrate on the valuation. But more interestingly, I think, is this idea that it is raising more money in the equity markets than I can think of 
any public company ever doing. It seems to be easier to raise money when you're private than when you're public. Public companies can't just keep on coming out doing secondary offerings every six months in the way that Uber does. This, the shareholders wouldn't stand for that kind of dilution, but Uber can get away with it, which is absolutely fascinating to me. And the founder's commitment to spending 99% of his proceeds on strippers and cocaine is really heartening. <laughs> this is, yeah. Company, who, company uh, once known as Boober. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my number is less than 20. So um, Is it 10? No, it, it's just less than 20. It's 20 and less. So I am writing a column about this now, so it's very much on my mind. The Secretary of Defense is trying very hard to stop one of the most perverse elements of the U.S. military, which is that you basically, until you get 20 years of service, you don't get a pension, and then you get a really, really, really generous pension. And having spent some time with officers in the U.S. military, with non-commissioned officers, um, I've learned that what that means is if you get to 38 or 41 or 42, you get to retire and make half your salary, which can be high. If you're a lieutenant colonel, it could be 50 grand every year for the rest of your life. But if you get drummed out a year or two earlier, you get nothing. And it creates, and there's a lot of literature on this, a culture of toadyism where your boss, your commanding officer has enormous power over you because they have this like giant, beautiful carrot that they can take away from you at any point. It, it's seen as one of the primary problems in creating a learning organization where skeptics or people with smart ideas can actually let senior leadership know. And so Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, through a massive overhaul of the Army personnel system, is trying to create portable uh, pension systems for people with much less service. So that means it's, first of all, just fair. I mean, if you've served 10 or 12 or 15 years in the military, um, you should get some pension. And then also, I think it will lead to a healthier military. The problem is it has to pass Congress, and Congress is probably not in the mood to pass any major overhaul of defense in this election season, even if it's a smart one that would help protect us. Um, but I hope it passes. Question, would that cost more money or less money than the current system? Or is it neutral? Because I feel like that that is going to have some impact on whether we have any hope of it actually happening. So this is part of a huge series of reforms. Okay. And it's one of those things where if you believe the story, which I basically do, that it's long-term cost beneficial, but short-term it probably would cost some money. And that's part of why it'll never yeah. pass. Okay. That is it for us this week. Thank you, Adam Davidson. You are a prince among podcasters and uh, the big short is out um if you live in los angeles or new york any minute now otherwise you might need to wait until christmas-ish in any case go see it if you want to go see margot robbie in a bathtub if you liked the show subscribe to slate money also subscribe to awesomely boring or what's the name? surprisingly awesome surprisingly awesome <laughs> um uh, which is which is on itunes and exactly the same app that you use to listen to this one it's awesomely boring no surprisingly, surprisingly awesome. awesome write to us continue to write again. thank you for all of your mcdonald's related um emails don't listen to us with two headphones on when you're on your bicycle terry farrow who emailed us saying that you listen to us <laughs> on your bicycle um, just 
make sure you only have one earbud in because we want to make sure you hear the cars and you stay safe. We want as many listeners to survive as possible because <laughs> it's basically cause it's good for our numbers, not for your health, for ours. <laughs> um, many thanks to Zach Dynastine, who was trying desperately to keep us from going massively over it this week and failing miserably. It was not his fault. It was entirely mine. Um, many thanks to the executive producer, Andy Bowers. The Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network there at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.